the podcast from Belmont Chapel in Exeter, sharing the story, living the life. For more information, go to belmontchapel.org.uk. Good morning, everyone. Um, My name's Gemma. Uh, I'm a member here at Belmont, and I'd really love to extend my welcome to that of Christine's and the bands this morning. Um, Now, I'm aware that there might be people who are joining us for the first time this morning. That's absolutely fine. It's genuinely really, really lovely to have you here. Um, And there might be people who are in church for the first time this morning. Again, it's really, really lovely to have you here. Um, So I just wanted to kind of do a little quick explanation of where we are at the moment. About three weeks ago, we started this new series, working our way briefly, don't panic, through the Old Testament, okay? So just so everyone's on the, old, on the same page, the Old Testament, uh, the Bible's made up of two parts, the Old Testament, the Old Promise, and the New Testament, the New Promise, okay? Now, the New Testament covers the birth, the life, the death, the resurrection, that is the rising again, of Jesus. It covers what happens after that moment, and it covers what will come at the end. The Old Testament, though... Oh, too far. Hold on. We'll get there in a minute. The Old Testament, though, it covers um, basically everything from the existence of Jesus right at the beginning to um, the existence of Jesus, the existence of the world right at the beginning to um, about 400 years before Jesus' birth. And it explores the relationships and interactions between God uh, and his creation, specifically, as Johnny and Simon have referenced over the last couple of weeks, his relationship with human beings. We'll wait and see if the PowerPoint does what I want it to do. Here we go. There we go. We're we're on track. All is well and good. Now, we're doing this because sometimes we can neglect the Old Testament, okay? Now, being completely honest with you this morning, I am one who used to avoid the Old Testament. Uh, I wouldn't read it unless it was um, a nice story that I knew or it was a psalm. Um, And that's because I think the Old Testament can sometimes be quite scary. It can be quite difficult. It can be quite... uh, random and confusing. Let's be real, in today's world, the Old Testament can sometimes be a little bit problematic as well. What what we have to remember, though, and what I'm hoping we'll kind of see this morning, is that this is still scripture, okay? Like, it's still God's word. And that means that it has as much to say to us now in our lives and our situations as Jesus's words do in the Gospels, yeah, as Paul's helpful hints and tips to life together do in the letters, okay? In fact, what the Old Testament does is it brings a depth and a fullness to Jesus and his teachings and the teachings that followed him that we wouldn't have otherwise because we're not steeped in those stories, in that culture, in that history that the early church were. See, the Old Testament does for the new and the person of Jesus basically what my glasses do for my vision, yeah? They bring focus, they bring clarity, uh, it brings a greater definition to what I'm understanding. To to put it another way, if you're someone who doesn't wear glasses and so has never experienced that, um, I don't know how many of you are into like Marvel films or films of like certain trilogies, but if you went to the cinema and you saw the newest Marvel film and you like that kind of film, you're probably going to enjoy it. You're going to have a great time. It's going to be brilliant. But if 
you have spent the hours and hours watching all 15 films beforehand, you've, you've taken the time to engage in the story before, then, then that Marvel film, that isn't just a film to you, that's like something amazing. You, you pick up on the callbacks, the, the minute little details, the, the sneaky little things they've kind of snuck in, yeah? You get it in a, in a much better and richer sense. That's what the Old Testament does for us, and that's what this series, that's what we're trying to do in it. So, two weeks ago, Simon Richards explored creation with us. Uh, And last week, Johnny helped us to think about Genesis 12 uh, and what it looks like for us to kind of channel our inner Abraham, yeah, and trust God's promise and his word, despite the struggles and the lack of clarity we might have in our lives. This week, though, we're going to be thinking about Exodus, the big themes of redemption and expectation that we're introduced into it as well, all right? So I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to get going into the book of Exodus. I can tell you're all super excited. Let me pray, and then we'll we'll crack on. Lord Jesus, we thank you now for this time spent together in your words. We just ask that you help us to grasp a little bit more of your overarching story uh, this morning. Lord, we pray that through your spirit, you'll speak to us and speak into our lives. Allow us to be open to hear from you, your nudges, your encouragement, maybe things we need to think about as we go into our weeks. Lord, we thank you for this time spent together now learning about you. Amen. So, our focus this morning is on this verse. Exodus 20, verse 2, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. But before we get to why this verse is so important when it comes to understanding Exodus and the Old Testament and Jesus and the Bible and God, um, I want to tell you a little bit about how we kind of got to this point from where we left off last week. So, last week, we meet Abraham, we met Abraham, uh, and we're told that he's going to start a nation. And basically, the next 38 chapters of Genesis, uh, we start to see that happen, okay? Abraham has a son called Isaac, which hopefully will come up in a minute, and Isaac has two sons called Esau and Jacob. Then Jacob has 12 sons, I've not written them all out, don't panic, uh, but one of them is called Joseph, and he has a really nice coat. Uh, now, the book of Genesis ends not with God's people, that's Jacob and his family, in God's place, uh, the land that God had promised them under God's rule, but it ends with them in Egypt, having made a home there after fleeing from famine under the rule of quite a sympathetic pharaoh. The book of Exodus then opens by telling us that that kind of family of 70 that stuck around in Egypt at the end of Genesis not only survived, but thrived and multiplied in the land of Egypt. We'll wait for the PowerPoint to catch up. All is going well until a change of government in Egypt leads to a change of policy towards the Israelites. Okay? Uh, this is the name kind of given to God's people. And all of a sudden, the Israelites are no longer thriving. In fact, they're finding it really, really difficult to survive uh, because the new government policy in the land of Egypt is to reduce the Israelites. And how are they going to reduce them? Well, they're going to reduce them by killing every Israelite boy at birth. Now, the Israelites, God's chosen people, they're in all sorts of trouble. They become slaves, trapped, and they're having to endure economic and political and social and spiritual bondage. And they cry out to God to help them get out of this mess. And God hears them. 
which is really special. He calls this guy, Moses, an 80-year-old man, to help him rescue and free his people. Now, Moses is an Israelite, saved at birth by his mum and his sister, and rescued by Pharaoh's daughter. He's brought up in the Egyptian kind of royal household, but he knows where he's from. He knows whose he is, and that is really, really important. One day Moses sees the kind of horrible treatment that his people are having to endure and he, he kind of murders a guard to try and enact justice, hiding the body so people don't see. But people find out and so he runs away to a place called Midian where he finds safety and a job and a wife and he also encounters God for the first time. God speaks to Moses through the burning bush and identifies him as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He identifies himself as the God who was there before, the God that was with his people before, and the God of that promised land and nation and blessing that Johnny was talking about last week. God tells Moses that he's seen and heard the cries and the pain and the struggle of their descendants and his people in Egypt, and he's going to deliver them from the slavery and bondage they find themselves in. Moses is going to be the one to help him do that. Now, Moses is something that we are not often, and that is really quite honest with God. Um, He basically goes, look, I'm going to be honest with you, God, this really isn't my vibe. This is not what I want to be doing. Um, And he lists all the reasons why he feels like that. Okay, He's like, I don't have authority. Um, People don't listen to me. I'm a bad speaker. I'm not good at speaking in front of people. But these protests are overcome by the revelation of God's name. God tells him, I am who I am. I am Yahweh. And the promise of God's constant presence, whatever he faces. Over the next kind of eight chapters, we see Moses repeatedly ask Pharaoh to let the people go, and Pharaoh repeatedly refused. God begins to send plagues to demonstrate his power and assist with Moses' appeals, but instead of changing course, um, the nation of Egypt doubles down, and Pharaoh's heart hardens against the power and the appeals of God. The final appeal comes in the shape of a plague that strikes down the firstborn of every household in Egypt. And the thing about this plague is that it impacts everyone in the land, from the lowest of the low to the highest, the Pharaoh himself. And the only ones who escape are God's chosen people because they've been given, like, a get-out-free-jail card, a means of escape. And that is the blood of a perfect lamb painted around their door. Now, this incredible and difficult act... um, is what changes Pharaoh's position. And he demands Moses leave his people and the land, oh, thank you, at once. They escape with gifts from the Egyptian people, which are going to come in handy later. But on their way out, Pharaoh changes his mind, chasing them down and trapping them on the shore of the sea. With Pharaoh behind them um, and a vast sea in front of them, the people shout out to Moses, Um, And they go, look, why did you bring us out to the desert to die? At least in Egypt, when we were slaves, we were alive. But then something absolutely incredible happens. Chris Wright, who um, has written uh, a lot on this, calls it the greatest miracle of all time, remembered through all Israel's generations to the present day. This is a big, big moment, okay? The sea parts. Just like at the beginning of the world and just like the the flood in Noah's time, the power of the wind at God's command separates the waters um, and it allows the Israelites to kind of escape but returns to drown the Egyptian army. 
The Israelites are delivered from their slavery. They're brought back out of bondage. It is finished, right? It is done. They have been delivered. They are redeemed, and now they are free to be God's people, in God's place, under God's rule, once again. As they find themselves in the desert with no idea where to go, God guides and leads them. When they're hungry, God provides their food. When they're thirsty, God provides their water. And as we get to chapter 19 and chapter 20, where our verse is today, when they're unsure how to live with one another and with God, he provides them instructions and guidance and expectations. In the chapters that follow, we are introduced to the law, the idea of the covenant, this kind of special type of promise that we're going to unpack next week. But what we see in Exodus is how redemption and God's law enable that promise to be a blessing and be blessed to take place. Now, this moment um, in Exodus 20 is really, really exciting. And it's really, really exciting because it's the first time that God addresses all of the people. Thus far, he's spoken to the people through Moses, through Aaron, but in this moment, he addresses everyone. And the first thing that God has to say to his people is this, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt and out of the land of slavery. Now, it's been three months since that's happened, right? And and I don't know about you, but you probably haven't forgotten that because it's quite a big life moment. It's one of those things that you probably remember for the rest of your life. And yet God reminds them of it. And why? Well, because I think, and I might be wrong, but I don't think I am, this is the most important moment in this people's history. This is the most important moment of the Old Testament. See, what the cross is to those who follow Jesus, this moment is to the, to, um, the Jews. Yeah? This is what their entire faith hangs on. I think this verse and this moment is super, super important. And I'm going to spend the rest of this morning convincing you of the same, if that's okay. Um, So the first reason I think this is because this moment reveals everything that you need to know about God. The second is, is that this moment reveals the reason that everything that comes after, comes after. And the third is that this moment sets up the greatest moment in all of human history, okay? That's why this is so exciting. I'm hoping you're catching some of my excitement because I'm very excited. Um, So let's start with the first thing. Um, This moment, the deliverance of the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt, reveals everything that you need to know about God. Now that might seem like a really bold statement, but I think it's a true one. And here's why. First, I think it's true because it shows us that God, the creator and sustainer of the universe, hears human beings. I want you just to take that in for a moment. God, the creator and sustainer of the universe, hears human beings. That's bigger than we think it is, I think. Um, I once wrote to my MP about the traffic lights at the end of Sweet Bry Lane, and he didn't reply to me because he didn't have enough time. God is the creator and sustainer of all living things, all life, all existence on this earth, and he takes the time to hear his people. He takes the time to hear their cries. He takes the time to feel their pain. He takes the time and he is willing to act. He is willing to rescue and he is willing to save. Now, we might not get how big that is because we're kind of maybe quite comfortable with this idea of God being involved and active in our lives. But at at that time, this isn't what God did. 
It's not who gods were. They didn't care for humans like humans cared for them. And yet this God, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, he not only acknowledges the cries, the hurt, the pain, the pleas of his people, but he goes out of his way to do something about it. That's pretty cool. Second, oh, sorry, that was more powerful than I wanted it to be. He reveals his name to Moses. Now, again, that is something that might not seem like too big a deal to us. But actually, revealing your name is quite an intimate and personal thing to do. I was having a conversation about that with someone the other day. In our culture nowadays, we're quite used to calling people by their first names. But a few years ago, that wasn't necessarily the case. Um, Some of you will know I work in a secondary school. In that school, I am Miss Kane. That's how they address me. That's how they talk to me. Students that know me from elsewhere, that might be church or from other things that I do, know me as Gemma. But but being able to call me Gemma, that shows a special kind of permission, a special kind of relationship that I have with them than the one that kind of we're supposed to have. God tells his people, you can call me by your first name, by my first name even. That's really special. That's really different. And it shows us that this is a God that doesn't just want our abstract worship and adoration. He wants a personal, intimate relationship with those who choose to follow him. That's something really special. Thirdly, it also demonstrates that God remains true to his word. As we looked last week, God's promises kind of massive things to Abraham but but by the time we reach the calling of Moses it looks like it's all gone to pot the the Israelites are in Egypt for 400 years for 400 years they wait for God to make good on his word and yet in those 400 years he already has um in Genesis 15:13 to 14, God tells Abraham, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, that they will be enslaved and ill-treated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. God warns Abraham that this will happen, and it does basically like he says, yeah? God is a God that follows through. What he says can be trusted, Unlike the humans he's chosen to partner with, he doesn't break his promises and his word can be relied on. He promises to rescue and redeem them, and he does, but he does it in his own timing. God will always come through for us, and, and, and he will, we just have to trust. We have to trust that, that he will do that because he says he has, and he will. The Israelites know that, that God's promise um, has said that he will give them a land, that he will give them blessing. And that's why they're crying out to him at the beginning of Exodus. And God shows them in this moment that, that they're going to receive that, however unlikely it might seem, if they continue to trust and they continue to follow him. Last week, um, I helped with PRP, which is like our 14 to 18s uh, kind of chat about the talk after the service. And we were talking about the fact that um, trusting God requires patience. And we were talking about how hard patience is and how hard, how much harder it must have been for Abraham and for even Moses, because they didn't have all the stories of God's faithfulness to trust in. But we do. 
If you are waiting this morning on a promise, whether that is specific to you or just a general promise to God's people, keep trusting, keep waiting, keep patient. Because God is actually true to his word. And that's the kind of God he is. And you're not the exception to that rule. And actually, if you're sat here thinking you are, not to be too rude, but that's pretty arrogant of you. The second thing then, is that this moment reveals the reason why what comes next comes next. And that's because this rescue, this saving grace, this revealing of God's character leads to a response of worship that comes primarily in two ways. The first is what we see in Exodus 15. As soon as the Israelites cross the sea safely, they break out in a song of praise. They sing, I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. Both horse and driver he has hurled into the sea. Not necessarily something we would sing on a Sunday morning, but it does illustrate the reason that they're praising God, doesn't it? The second reason they sing, the second way they worship, though, is through the law. Now, that might feel really uncomfortable to you if you're a follower of Jesus today, because by the time the New Testament comes, the law actually has quite a bad rep. But the law is a gift from God. To those who are already redeemed, in order to help them lead the life of blessing that God has called them to. It's not entrapping. It's supposed to be freeing. See, God has rescued his people, but he's not just done it for the lols. Like he's, not, he's not just done it for fun. God has rescued Israel because he has made a promise to them. God has a mission for the whole world, and the Israelites, God's chosen people, are crucial to that. But in order for them to do that, they need to know how to live in a way that reflects that character, that reflects the heart of God. I think God reminds the people of what he's done here in chapter 20, verse 2, right before the Ten Commandments, which sort of summarize the whole of the law, because it's... The law comes as a response to who God is and what God has done for them first. All the expectations and instructions that come in those 613 little statements, in those five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy, come not as a condition of salvation. They are already saved at this point. They are already redeemed. They are free from their slavery, but as a response to it. The law is there to ensure that those who the Lord God has brought out of Egypt walk in the way of blessing. If they are to carry out that mission that God has called them to in Genesis 12, to be figureheads of blessing, the priests, the the middlemen between the rest of the world, um, then they need to be like God. They need to be holy, different and distinct in every single aspect of their lives, from the choices they make to what they wear, to where they sleep, to what they eat. They need to be different. They are the people through whom God makes himself known, and they are the ones through whom he's going to draw the world to himself. And as we live in a post-Jesus, well, he's still here, but, you know, after he died and rose again, world, Peter reveals that the royal priesthood, those people who are going to be the middlemen, aren't just the Israelites anymore. It's been extended to all those who follow Jesus and believe in his name. That means that call, that response, should be kind of mirrored by us. 
We need to be the same kind of holy, the same kind of different and distinct in every aspect of our lives. Because God is using us wherever we are and whatever we do to make himself known. He is using us in the places where we are day in, day out to draw the world around us to himself. Now we no longer have the law the same way. But we do have instructions, we have advice, we have guidance, we have expectations of the the sorts of choices we should and should not be making in response to all that God in Jesus has done for us. And I guess my question for you this morning, if you are a follower of Jesus in this room, is how good are you at that? How good are you good are you at responding to your redemption by honouring what is asked of you? How different, how distinct are you in the different aspects of your life? Finally, um, as I hope you've already seen this so far, uh, as I've been speaking, this moment sets up the greatest moment in all of human history. Um, In his commentary on this, Chris Wright writes that it is the story of redemption in the Old Testament which shapes Israel's concept of God as a redeemer and provides both the Old Testament and the New Testament with their template of what redemption means. This redemption that the Bible talks about is about winning back and setting free. In Exodus, we see God go to battle with Pharaoh and win his people back, freeing them from the physical slavery they faced up until Jesus. And that's very much how it's kind of understood by the Israelites throughout Scripture. Every time Israel is invaded or kind of captured by an oppressive nation, they remember that God is their God, that the Lord is their Lord, that he brought them out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, that he won them back and set them free, and he will do it again. And that's what keeps them going in the face of the oppression and the mistreatment and the occupation and persecution that they face. In fact, in the time of Jesus, when Israel sits under Roman occupation, this is what they're waiting for. God to come again and to set them free from the kind of bondage of the occupation that they find themselves in. And yet when Jesus starts teaching and he starts talking about redemption, he understands it to be more than just this physical winning back, this physical setting free. In the same way that God... Um, that God's people end up physically enslaved because they failed to follow God's instruction, Jesus explains that we end up spiritually enslaved by doing the same thing. Yes, your occupiers are treating you badly, but that's not your biggest problem. That's what Jesus has come to say. Actually, that wasn't the Israelites' biggest problem when they were in Egypt either. You are created to worship God and follow him freely. The Egyptians got in the way of that for the Israelites But sin, sin gets in the way of that for you. And so just like God goes to battle with Pharaoh to win his people back and free them from once and for all, he goes to battle with sin and does the same thing for us by dying on a cross and rising again. All of a sudden, those who believe in Jesus are free, just like the Israelites were when they crossed through that water. Free to be God's people, under God's rule, and ultimately heading to the place which God has promised us forever. The act of redemption that we witness in Exodus 14 is what keeps the Israelites going through their 70 years in exile later on in the Old Testament, through the numerous occupations and invasions they faced, 
When I was studying uh, my A-level history, um, I learned that, that this act of redemption is also what keep, kept many Jewish people going through some of the horrific persecution they experienced way later in history too. Now, our spiritual slavery looks different to this physical slavery. The chains and the forced labor the Egyptians faced are replaced by burdens of guilt and shame and not enoughness that we experience and see around us. But Jesus can and has freed us from that too. And the knowledge that we are redeemed, if we choose to accept that offer of redemption, can keep us going when stuff gets rough for us too. If you're not a follower of Jesus here today, um, can I encourage you to really investigate for yourself how and why God goes into battle for you, why he fights for you, why he redeems you. You can come along to Alpha, like we've just spoken about, on a Tuesday evening and discover what this means for yourself or or chat to someone, maybe the person that brought you or, or come find me after the service. I'd love to talk to you about it a bit more. But if you are a follower of Jesus in here today, can I encourage you and remind you that you have been redeemed? That the Lord your God has brought you out of the land of slavery and you are free. You don't have to be trapped under the guilt and the shame of mistakes and mess ups that you made or or continue to make because you are redeemed. You are free. And my prayer for you guys this morning is that if you take one thing from anything I've said this morning, please, 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 let it be that. You are free. You no longer live in the land of slavery. I'm going to pray for us, um, and then I'm going to hand over to the band. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, um, We thank you so much that you went into battle for us and won us back. We thank you that we are free, that we are redeemed, that we live and can live in the freedom that you have given us, the place where we can worship you and follow you and love you. Lord, help us in the areas of our life where we are maybe not responding to that offer of redemption in the ways that we could to rectify those things. Lord, if we've been challenged this morning to maybe revisit or or rethink about decisions that we're making. Lord, I pray that that we do do that, that we do listen to those nudges. But Lord, we thank you that you are a God who wants to to know us intimately. You are a God who invites us into relationship with you. You are a God who can be trusted, whose word we can know is true. And Lord, as we go about in our weeks uh, weeks this week, I just pray that you help us um, to hold on to those things and to step out in the knowledge that if we want to be, we can be free because of you. Amen.